0: All right. Thanks for joining everybody. Welcome to the final installment of the John's Gospel Bible Study. Uh, As I've mentioned the last couple weeks, uh, Bible study after tonight's study will be on break for a few months until around June or so. Uh, We have not yet decided what the topic of the or what the, the scripture for the next study will be. So, again, if you have thoughts about that, if you have requests, strong feelings... Uh, head on over to the Bible study page of the website and there's a form to contact Robert. You can send your thoughts to Robert. And when Robert and I decide what the uh, scripture for the next piece of the study will be, we will consider your thoughts. Uh, And certainly if there's demand for a particular thing, we will try to accommodate that. Oh, now I do hear myself back, Robert. I don't know. (laughs) Robert and I were having a little bit of some audio issues before, uh, before live here. So, We'll do our best to manage those. Uh, bear with it. A little bit of feedback here, potentially. Um, then the oh, the other thing I was going to say, uh, as I mentioned last week, but I just want to make sure everyone's on the same page, especially for the last week of the study. Um, if, uh, if, if you'd like to participate in the study in the future, we don't yet have a, a date for when we'll return, but I've added an, uh, a, a sign up for an email list on the Bible study page as well. So you can just submit your email address there. Uh, and when we are ready to announce when Bible study will return, I will send you an email and you will have that information. So you don't have to listen to a particular spot in the in the podcast or you know, look out for a spot on the website or something like that. I'll just email you directly if you'd like the news of when Bible study will return. And uh, that is all I have. So uh, without further ado, Robert has the final lesson for us.
1: Okay. Can you still hear yourself?
0: It's kind of, it was, it's just like little blips. So I'm just going to keep myself muted for now, but it's like, I get little blips of feedback. It's not a big deal. It's not intrusive.
1: Okay. But can you hear me? Okay. Is my mic all right? Yeah. Your mic sounds great. Good deal. Then we're going to roll with it and figure it out next time. Okay. Let's, uh, let's get to the scripture reading and then. We will discuss. Matt, let me know if it doesn't play for some reason.
2: When they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal fire ready with a fish placed upon it and bread. Jesus said, Bring some of the fish you have just now caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and pulled the net to shore. It was full of large fish, 153, but though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come, have breakfast, Jesus said. But none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Then, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these do? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He replied, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus told him, Shepherd my sheep. Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me, and said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus replied, Feed my sheep. I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and went wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Now Jesus said this to indicate clearly by what kind of death Peter was going to glorify God. After he said this, Jesus told Peter, Follow me. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the disciple who had leaned back against Jesus' chest at the meal and asked, Lord, who is the one who is going to betray you? So when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus replied, If I want him to live until I come back, what concern is that of yours? You follow me. So the saying circulated among the brothers and sisters that this disciple was not going to die. Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die but rather if I want him to live until I come back what concern of that is yours this is the disciple who testifies about these things and has written these things and we know that his testimony is true there are many other things that Jesus did if every one of them were written down i suppose the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written the gospel of john chapter 21
1: Okay, that was the last scripture reading in the Bible study. And of course, this is chapter 21 of John, the very end of it. I will go through the main themes like I normally do. And then, unlike any other day, I do have kind of some closing thoughts or whatever uh, that may spark some more discussion. Well, the very first thing that, that we come across in this scene is the fact that the, as the apostles are fishing, Jesus is already at the shore, and notice he already has fire, fish, and bread. This is just painting a picture. This is not some you know huge theological point that I'm trying to make or anything like that, but Jesus has not come with them with any needs or or you know the, or really any request. Jesus already has what he needs. So it immediately sets the dynamic of the scene, right? Jesus is self-sufficient. And here, really to give Peter an assignment, um, not because Jesus needs anything, so to speak. Now, they're going to have breakfast. Remember, they had been fishing all night. And the, the apostles are probably very much ready to, bre- to, to have breakfast. Just as a, as a historical side note, the wealthy people at the time, normally the wealthy Romans, they would have three meals a day. Much like we do today, but pretty much everyone else, including really most of the Greeks, they would have only had two meals a day, um, one at night, and the one in the morning would either be early in the morning or closer to midday, closer to like a lunch or a brunch, if we want to call it that. Okay. So the apostles are tired, they're hungry, and they see Jesus, who already has a fire going, he's got fish cooking, and he has bread to go with it. Now, Jesus tells Peter to bring some of the catch, right? Bring some of uh, bring some of the, the fish that you caught. And we get here a picture that is important of abundance. Th- this really is an important point in the text, and it relates really to something else we've read in the Gospel of John, which is the apostles caught a bunch of fish, 153, but ignore the number for now. We will get to it in just a minute. They caught a bunch of fish, some of them very large fish. That's what the text tells us. And yet the net did not break. At this point, I think it's it's fair to kind of read into this image of the fish, that the fish represent future believers in Jesus. Um, And so it it is painting this picture that many will come to Christ, but also notice that the net did not break, right? The net was able to hold all of them. Um, And and this really is an important point if you think about it. There are some religions, some groups, who have certain numbers of people who will be saved or whatever. Christianity paints the opposite picture. Anybody who wants to come is welcome. You know, it's not like the kingdom of God is limited or, or anything. We see this same point being made, and i now come to this here in a little bit, but when Jesus feeds the 5,000, Right, he has food for everyone, and then plenty of leftovers. Again, painting this picture, there's no competition to getting to the the kingdom of God. Like anybody who wants in, is welcome. Uh, I, I said another blog if you're interested, but I, I'll leave it at that. Well, another little detail here in the narrative is that it does tell us the number of fish was 153. This is normally something that I wouldn't even discuss because it. In my opinion, it's not important. But if you're familiar with, um, you know, if you've been in kind of religious circles in the past, you know there's nothing that sparks speculation like numbers in the Bible. People go crazy, and I'm not even going to criticize the people that that's fair, whatever. Um, but sometimes it can go a little too wild. I would say, in this case, Absolutely, the speculation into the number 153 isn't justified. Um, Just to give you some background on this, some people will apply this hermeneutical principle or technique. When I say hermeneutical, that just means um, a method to interpret a text, right? So they, they apply this interpretive method called gematria, and I'm not completely sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, so I apologize if I'm not. Um, But that's the the method by which you apply a numeric value to a word, right? So people will say, this particular word has the the numeric value 153, so that's what John is hinting towards. And the the speculation gets wild. Some people will say, children of God has the numeric 153. Some people will say the villages in Ezekiel 4710 have that number. Some will even come up with terms like alpha Mary. So they, they they take this as part of Maryology. Okay. Would John expect us to come up with this number and then figure out the secret word? I highly, highly doubt it. What is the number 153 doing? Really two things. Number one, telling us that the catch was truly abundant. There were lots of fish. And number two, that this was a historical event right there was a this isn't just like a this isn't just some analogy or whatever no there there were 153 fish so it the detail very much makes this seem historic um there is one potential spe- speculation on this number that i didn't even write about because again i hate to go into this but there are some sources that indicate that people in the past thought that in this lake there were 153 different kinds of fish. If those sources are reliable, then the number could mean that all sorts of fish were, were picked in the net. But again, I would not put much stock in that. I'm only telling you in case you ever run into that argument, I don't want you to feel like I hit something from you, whatever. <laughs> okay, so moving on from that. Uh, Peter in this scene seems very eager to meet up with Jesus and really to be a servant to serve Jesus. Of course we saw this last week when Peter just jumps out of the boat and um you know with all his garments including his outer garment so Peter gets all of his stuff wet and runs to Jesus. And we see it now in the verses that we just read because when when Jesus says Peter go or you know go get some of the fish Peter is running back to the boat running back to Jesus. This is a detail but but it starts kind of setting the scene for the conversation that is about to happen. A couple of more details before we get into the meat of of today's passage. John says this is the third appearance of Jesus to the disciples. Anyways, It is a little bit unclear how John is counting the appearances because Jesus appears to the disciples more than three times, particularly if we count the women. But in the narrative that John is describing, the number three makes sense. John is probably counting the time that Jesus appeared to the apostles without Thomas being present. Then the second time would be when Jesus appeared to the apostles and Thomas was present. And then this would be the third time. Not that this really matters a whole lot, but again, any, any detail in there I, I try to look into. Okay. Then Jesus feeds the apostles bread and fish. This is highly reminiscent of when Jesus fed the five thousand, right? The 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 verses that I just brought up a minute ago. So there is this connection to chapter six, really to kind of the whole narrative of of John, where Jesus is coming to feed others, right? He's coming to provide. He's coming to serve. He's coming to save. It's a very positive. Role that Jesus is playing. It also connects the idea of abundance, right? Jesus is plenty for all who will come. There's no competition in the kingdom of heaven. Now, when the apostles are being fed by Jesus, we get what is probably the strangest interaction or or verse in this particular scene, which is that the apostles are afraid to ask him, Who are you? Uh, Because they knew that it was the Lord. Now, this, uh, at least it, it strikes me as odd, I guess I'll, I'll speak from a personal standpoint, right? Why are they wondering whether they can ask him if he's if he is Jesus or not? But I think that there's a good answer. The, there seems to be something different about Jesus post-resurrection, right? Something different about his body, I would say perhaps something heavenly about it, because Even in the two prior appearances, when Thomas was not there and then when Thomas was there, there seems to be a bit of a pause before the apostles fully recognize Jesus. First, like in in chapter 20, verse 19, it says, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced. Then we have the same interaction later when Thomas is there. You know, Jesus appears and says, put your fingers here, put your hand here. And then Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. Now, of course, that could be just that they're in disbelief that that their Lord has actually been resurrected. Or perhaps he's hinting to the fact that there is something a little unusual about Jesus. Um, But in this case, they can tell it's him, but they still want to ask, right? And I think that what they're, The reason the disciples don't actually ask is because if they were to ask a third time, hey, prove yourself, prove that it's really you, that really may come across as a denial. And, and again, I think that that makes sense of that odd interaction there. Well, and after that, we get to the main theme of this chapter, I would say, which is this conversation that Jesus has with Peter excuse me well the conversation begins with a question that is a little bit tricky jesus says do you love me more than these right or to be actually let me read it verbatim simon son of john do you love me more than these two well that that do at the end in the translation we're reading is implied Okay, so really it would be more proper to to cut off the question like I did at first. Do You love me more than these, question mark. The, these, the pronoun in there, in the text, does not have its proper antecedent, right? Whenever you use a pronoun, there should be something else in a sentence prior or as opposed to in the same sentence uh, that the pronoun is pointing to. But in this case, that's not in the text. So we have to figure out... W- what or who is these, right? What is it referring to? Well, there's really a couple of options. You could say there's three, but but there's only two options that anybody really considers. Um, one option is that it refers to the fishing or to the fish, however you want to look at it. Um, because Peter was a fisherman, and in this scene, he is fishing. And then Jesus calls him to be a shepherd, a shepherd of people. So Jesus could be saying do you love me more than your current job your current vocation fishing okay that is a possibility or the other possibility is that Jesus is saying do you love me more than these referring to the other apostles do you love me more than these other people and to well of course the the NET the translation that I have that I have been using leans towards the third option, which is why it adds that last word, do. Do you love me more than these two? Which clearly implies he's talking about the other apostles. Uh, but that is a little bit of interpretation that's going on there with the translation. If you read a different translation, it doesn't quite sound like that. Okay. However, this is the translation that I lean towards, or the, the interpretation, rather, that I lean towards this third one. Why? Because. It, it makes sense of the entire scene and the entire dialogue. Remember that Peter, in the Gospel of John, he says, and I, I'm just going to read this. This is out of chapter 13. That says, Simon Peter said to him, being Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you right? So Peter promised to to die for Jesus. In the other gospels, we actually have an explicit statement that where, where Peter essentially makes it sound like he loves Jesus more than the other apostles. For example, out of Matthew 26, Peter said to him, if they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth on this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Okay. So with that background in mind, it it makes sense for Jesus to come back now and say, Do you stand by those statements? like are are you willing to say that again? And if I further read into this, right? if I make a further inference, are you willing to make those statements again? But this time, mean them, this time, keep those statements. And if you read it in such a way, I think again, the whole dialogue falls into place. but if you if you take the other option that Jesus is asking, will you drop fishing for shepherding? that's fine too. there's There's my two cents on that. you you can make up uh, your own mind. Um, now, Jesus asked the same question of Peter. Three times, and it says Peter is distressed, or at least that's the English word in the NET. Um, your translation probably uses a similar word. At any rate, but the the word in the Greek for distress is a very strong word. It's actually the exact same word used in John chapter sixteen to describe how the apostles felt after the death of Jesus. Right. So the the point I'm making here is Peter is deeply hurt that Jesus is asking him this three times and, and that hurt shows that Peter is being sincere every time that he says yes, 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 I do love you, I do love you, I do love you. Um, you know, like what else can show you? Um, so we the interaction here with Peter, I think is it's a very sincere one. Peter has had a full change of heart. Peter is ready to commit to the cause, um, you know, to do whatever it is that Jesus asked him to do. Well, the interaction, actually, let me, I'm going to go kind of a little bit out of order with, with my blog, but let me talk about the, the these questions and answers, particularly the word being used for love. I I'm about to probably make some people mad, and I apologize if I do, I'm not trying to, but... In in Christian circles, we normally make a very big deal of the different Greek words that are translated as love in English, right? Greek has many words for it. Um, I th- Normally, I think people would say five. Um, you know, like, to give you examples that are not in this text, but you would have eros, like the word for erotic, uh, which that would be the sexual kind of love. Um, or you have more of the a family kind of love that is uh, storge i think and then in this text we deal with two words one is agape and the other one is phileo okay now the agape love normally like i said at least in christian circles we we would talk about it is that agape love is the highest form of love it right? is the love that really wishes well for the other person not expecting anything in return is the kind of love that is truly uh, self-sacrificial, right? It is the way that God loves us and it is the way that we should love God back and ideally the way that we should love one another. Now, phileo has a different semantic range. This is normally the kind of love that friends or brothers have for one another, right? Hence the city of like Philadelphia, right? The, The city of brotherly love. It comes from this Greek word. Now, here's here's the kicker, though, that although the semantic ranges for agape and phileo are different, so normally the points that that Christians are making by using those different words are true. Again, normally it's fine to point out the differences between these two words, but people can take it a little too far. These two words sometimes can be used interchangeably. They can be used as synonyms in the Greek. And John absolutely does that throughout the gospel of John. In fact, the love from the father to the son, it is described using both words, agape and phileo, right? And in this text, you see that again, in the first question, Jesus says, hey, do you agape me? The second question again, do you agape me? But notice that Peter responds all three times, yes. And then he uses phileo, love, right? And so Jesus then again says, do you agape love me? And Peter says, yes, phileo love you. And then in the third instance, Jesus uses the same verb as Peter, phileo. And and Peter says, yes, phileo love. Okay, so if you think that these words always mean different things, This story makes no sense because it means that Jesus kind of downgrades his request, right? It's like, hey, Peter, do you really love me? Like this high form of love. And Peter is like, no, only low love. And Jesus goes, no, do you really love me? This high form of love. And Peter goes, no, only the low kind of love. And then Jesus goes, okay, you love me in this lower way. And Peter goes, yes. And then they rejoice. (laughs) It does not make sense. I'm sorry this is a a, a very long excursus Greek. The point I'm trying to make is um sometimes these words are used, uh, these words are used interchangeably certainly in this case that is that is so and we should be careful not to overstate our understanding of of Greek right um okay so with that little greek wrinkle out of the way not only do we have these, these three questions and answers, but Jesus makes um, a, a prediction, right? He says, I tell you the solemn truth. When you were young, you tied your clothes around you and went to wor- wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and others will tie you up and bring you where you do not want to go. Now, what is the image here? What is the implication? It is somebody being bound, right? Somebody being bound and being taken where they do not want to go, it is a, a very strong implication of execution. So so Jesus seems to be saying here, when you're old, you will be arrested, you will be in prison, and you will be ex- executed. And th- this prediction, this very kind of somber prediction or prophecy, follows three commands Jesus gives, and then uh, there's man. Jesus says, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. Uh, this prediction in this says, follow me. Okay. Well, notice the change that's happening here. At uh, first, you know, early in chapter 21, we're using the analogy of fish and the net and fishing and all of that. And now Jesus uses the analogy of the shepherd. It says, feed my lambs, you know, feed my sheep, which are synonyms, essentially shepherd my sheep, follow me. And there is this prediction, you will die doing so. This is, is actually extremely powerful when you think back to John chapter 10. And I, I I'm going to read just this uh, you know, these two verses. The, again, chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not a shepherd and does not own sheep, sees the wolf coming and abandons the sheep and runs away. So the wolf attacks the sheep and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. He runs away. Particularly with this prediction that Peter will die for the sheep, Jesus is saying here, be a shepherd, but be like the good shepherd. Don't be like the hireling who really has no skin in the game. So he just runs away when the going gets tough. And for this to make sense then, for Jesus to say, hey, be not like the hireling, be like the good shepherd, it has to mean that Peter is no longer a hireling. Now, no, I am not saying that Peter is elevated to to the level of Jesus, but clearly now Peter must be a part of the household. This is what I have been stressing all throughout the Gospel of John. What is the promise that Jesus is making, right? What is what is this heaven that he's promising? Jesus is saying, you will be a son or daughter of God. That is to say, you will be part of the household. You will have inheritance rights. What is mine is yours. That is always the promise. Well, now that Jesus has died and resurrected, Peter is finally part of the household, part of the family. So he's not just a hireling, Right. He is acting as a member of the family. So he will not run away this time. Not like he failed last time. This time he will care for the sheep to the point of death, just like Jesus. Um, as a quick side note, the, the Christian tradition, which in all likelihood is correct. Uh, I, I don't know of anybody who strongly opposes this. Uh, Peter did die by crucifixion. And tradition says that Peter died upside down, that Peter did not consider himself worthy to die like the Lord did. So when they were going to crucify him, he asked if he could be crucified upside down. Um, Because Peter uh, died that way, at least that's what tradition says, early Christians interpret the phrase stretch out your hands to mean like stretch them out in crucifixion. But in context, that's probably not what's going on with that phrase. It probably does mean stretch out your hands, as in stick them out so somebody can bind them, somebody can tie them, and then lead you to your execution. And Peter must have understood that his fate was, was to die, right? In, in, in some kind of execution, because when Peter sees John, Peter says, well, what about that guy, right? and here the tone changes where where it seems like Jesus was speaking in a very kind tone to Peter before and i'm i'm reading between the lines of course you're welcome to disagree but when peter turns turns to john and says or sees john and says hey what about him you know what's going to happen to him jesus seems a little bit upset right he responds in in fairly strong language what concern is that of yours or the the translation that I prefer because I think is much more blunt. What is that to you, right? What is that to you? What's going to happen to John? You worry about your own self. And to, actually, to respond, Jesus also uses hyperbole, right? Because he says, it, uh, "Let me read the the wording exactly, or I'm going to get it wrong. It's it's key actually that I that I read it just right." Uh, uh, sorry, Jesus replied. If I want him to live until I come back, what concern is that of yours? Okay, notice, if, if I want him to live until I come back, what concern is that of yours? And when does Jesus come back? Jesus comes back at the end time, right? At the the eschaton, when everybody goes to heaven, so to speak. That phrasing is a little inaccurate, but let's go with it for now. So notice that Jesus is using hyperbole and says, if I want him to live forever, what is that to you? that's what's going on there. And I think that this is actually a very important interaction that we get here at the end of, of John's gospel, because as Jesus is leaving and and his followers are left behind, and probably another phrase I, I shouldn't use is going to confuse people, but as, as people are, are left behind, you know, what are our roles? And do we have some right to be jealous of, of the lives of other believers compared to ours, of their tasks, and you know, as compared to ours. And this, the very strong answer from Jesus is no, no, that it, that that's not how the call from God works. And that, that word for call is actually the exact same word that we translate in English also as vocation, right? That's not the vocation of God. That's not how it works. Your calling and his calling are separate. They're not to be compared. You know, we, we ought not to feel jealousy towards another believer in their role. The, the best way that I can explain this really is a prayer that gets used in the Wesleyan tradition. I'm going to read it. It's very short, but I think it's very impactful in it. And it goes along with this text. This is the Wesley Covenant prayer. It says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you. Praise for you or criticize for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now a wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. So I just think that that is a beautiful prayer. And the, the other thing that's odd with this interaction between Peter and John is that the other disciples misunderstand it, right? John tells us this explicitly, that other uh, followers of Jesus misunderstood the hyperbole that Jesus used. And so they thought that John truly would not die until Jesus came back. And John is trying to set the record straight and say, no, no, no. He said, if I wanted him to live forever if I wanted him to live until I come back. Not that he will, in fact, live until I come back. I think that's just a good warning for the rest of us that we always need to be careful to interpret the words of Jesus correctly and not to take them the wrong way. Then the Gospel of John closes with with two uh, quick thoughts, I guess, if we want to say it like that. Uh, Verse 24 makes it explicit that this is the testimony of the guy writing the Gospel. Uh, you know John, and this emphasizes the fact that this is this is eyewitness testimony, and therefore it is reliable. Also, this is in keeping with legal documents at the time. Uh, ancient Mediterranean documents would finish with a list of witnesses, so it kind of makes sense in in keeping with that form. And verse twenty-five is highly reminiscent of verse twenty or verse yeah twenty thirty chapter twenty verse thirty. And we discussed that last time, this idea of Jesus performed many more miracles. Other documents I'm also finished with similar praise. But I think we have good reason to believe that John means it a little more literally than other documents might. Okay. So that's how the gospel of John ends. I can now believe we've covered it all. <laughs> so before I turn it over for questions, I have just like uh, four minutes here. I'm looking at the clock. I want to make... A suggestion um, and it's the only time I've done this you know in all nine months or whatever that we have been doing this which is we're going to take a long break now let's say that you want to continue down this path what should you do next and here's my suggestion it's nothing but a suggestion but I would say try going to church right if if the message of John is true then it's not the kind of thing that is, if the gospel is true, if, sorry, if the gospel is true, then it doesn't just contain propositional knowledge. It is something actionable. It is something that truly uh, would change people. So it should be something that that you can encounter in real life. So my suggestion is go to church, go to church and try it out. See See if it's true, see if it's not. Now, of course, I say that with a little bit of fear that you may go to a terrible church and conclude, huh, it wasn't true. Uh, (laughs) So I want to give you some advice there. But, But at the end of the day, if this stuff is true, there should be some experiential element. You should be able to go out there and find believers and see that there's some kind of difference. Now, many months ago, somebody asked me, hey, how can I you know, how can I find a good church? He phrased it a little differently. But I want to give you just a few uh, suggestions, four short suggestions, actually. One, does this church that you are t- or going to visit, does it believe the Bible? To me, that seems like a very basic requirement. The answer should be yes. And here, I'm going to get in hot water, but I'm just going to say it. that Normally, or... A a shortcut to figuring out if a church believes the Bible is looking at the response to some of the really controversial issues, like, is homosexuality a sin? Um, And I think that if a church says, oh, no, it's whatever, just love is love, I I think that maybe you might want to reconsider. And to make my position clear, is homosexuality like a main theme of the Bible? No, it's just a sin, like lots of other sins. But what's what's curious about that one is that it is called a sin both in the Old Testament and the New Testament a bunch of different times. So for a church to conclude, no, it's totally fine, really, they kind of have to ditch the Bible. And that's, to me, the real issue. That's why I would consider leaving a church. It's not because of the homosexuality issue in particular, but it's because um, they they kind of have to ditch the Bible to get to their conclusion. Um, second tip Does the church believe the core Christian doctrines? Here's a very simple litmus test. Could they honestly recite the Apostles' Creed? If they can, you're probably good. Um, Does the church practice fellowship? Going to church is not just about learning. It's not about listening to a sermon. If you just want to learn, you can participate in a Bible study like this one. But church is about more than that. It is really about joining a family. And so if there is no connection there, if you're not treated like a friend, if you don't have lunch with them from time to time or go watch a movie or whatever, then I'm sorry to say that that's that's not really what, you know, a full church experience. And the last thing I will say is if if those first three uh, criteria are met, then think about all the other little things. And, you know, like music style and, and that kind of thing. And just make sure that you're going somewhere where you feel comfortable. Um, I don't I don't particularly care about those things, but let's say the music style is too modern and you feel kind of embarrassed to participate. Well, maybe that's not the church for you. Maybe it's too old school and it's too boring for you. Okay, maybe it's not the church for you. Now, again, personally, this is just a personal thought. I would take any kind of music, any... <laughs> Uh, any any of those things, I would I would totally ignore if the church I'm going to is a godly church. Uh, but that may not be the case for everyone, and that's okay. Try to find somewhere where you fit in. And the the last thing I'll say before I open it up to to questions is, if you are thinking about this and you're you're just thinking, I don't know, I don't know where to go, send me an email. I will help you figure it out. I mean. I'm not omniscient, of course, but I can get on their website. I can look at some of those sermons online and tell you my opinion, and then you can take it from there. So with that, uh, Matt, I don't know if you, you know if you have questions, comments, or, or if you want to open it up. Thanks, Robert.
0: As usual, everybody, if you'd like to participate in the conversation with your own thoughts, uh, just write question in the chat. Just the word question will suffice, and I will bring you in momentarily. I have one question or thought about the scripture itself, and one questioner thought about what you just said about selecting a church or an institution. Um, I'm going to opt for the church selection, and if we have time, I'll come back to the scripture. Uh, as someone who dabbles in this idea of potentially selecting one, and but I haven't yet, so this is, this is relevant to me. Are there other scriptural cues? You you reference homosexuality, and I, I see how that gets that's an indicator of being politically compromised. Uh, and I understand your point there. Are there potentially more subtle ones I could find? It's very hard for me to, to walk in and say, so what's your position on, uh, you know, and that's a difficult opening conversation. If I'm speaking with someone there to try to feel it out, is there a more subtle scriptural issue, or, issue reference, or reference, I can... Reference. I can. Oh, now I'm getting the oh, feedback no, getting again. It. I don't know what that's about. But it, you, you get the idea of what I'm asking. Is there something more subtle that I can ask about in their scriptural interpretation?
1: Mm, that is a difficult question. But I mean, the answer really is yes. Uh, the thing is, it, to give you a really good answer, it would depend on... What denomination you're going to, and, and hmm. let me tell you why. Different denominations have hold different uh, sets of beliefs. Uh, all of them, I would consider—I no, shouldn't say that—many denominations I would consider to be completely orthodox, even if I don't agree with them. But I would, I would pay attention to whether they believe what they say they believe. L- let me give you an example. If you go to a Southern Baptist church, and they have a female preacher i would be highly skeptical why because southern baptists explicitly do not believe in female pastors right that's kind of like their big thing um and i can go further into that I, I, i'm trying not to insult anybody here so if 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 i went to southern baptist church and they had a female preacher i would know that they are not true to themselves and to me that's a huge warning sign hmm. Um, so to, to give more specific warning signs, I really kind of would have to know what denomination we're thinking about. Also, uh, most denominations at this point have broken into a liberal wing and a conservative wing, right? Like if you talk about the Presbyterians, you're going to have the PCUSA and the PCA. I hope I'm getting this correct. PCUSA would be the more liberal one. PCA would be the more conservative one. Same with the Methodists. You have the UMC, very liberal, the GMC, conservative. Um, and so forth. So there's other things you could look into. Um, I would just say, like, I don't know, shoot me an email. <laughs> okay. All right,
0: I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep uh, that in mind. Uh, God, like that feedback's getting me again. Feedback. It's coming. It's back. I don't know if we have a way to. Anyway, we'll we'll manage it. Uh, Garrick, uh, go ahead and chime in if
3: you're ready. Hey, how's it going, guys? We are
0: well. What's on your mind?
3: <laughs> okay, so. Um referencing the four different words for uh or Greek words for love. There's a great book by C. S. Lewis that covers this called The Four Loves, and he covers them pretty in-depth, I'd say. Uh highly recommended if you're kind of curious about a more uh um overall look at the, the different words and how they're used. Um I tried looking it up, and I, I can't seem to find it, but there is an argument as to why he changes the word that he uses. If I can find it, I'll try to email it to you, um, Robert, and, and try and get your uh, your feedback on it, because I'm curious what you'd have to respond to it. Um And I, I can't remember it off the top of my head, unfortunately. Uh The other thing I was going to comment, when it comes to selecting a church, I find the biggest factor is the preacher and how he preaches how he gives his sermons is a very big make or break thing for me because i had one previously at the church where my wife and i got married and he was fantastic he was an older gentleman and he talked about subjects that i thought were important in modern times and related them to scripture and it, it came out great he unfortunately retired. And his replacement is not as good, in my opinion. So it it leaves me wanting, and it it might be it might lead to confirmation bias. I could see that argument for it being a negative to just go on that uh, on that basis alone. But it, it to me, it's a very important thing. It'll definitely want you to go keep going to church, in my opinion.
0: All right. Thanks for the thoughts. Robert, did you uh, have any response to that?
1: Yeah. Very quick thoughts. Um, One, I am not not denying, by the way, that the four Greek words for love, the, the four that are being referenced, anyways, have different semantic ranges. That's absolutely correct. I'm not denying that. All I'm saying is these words sometimes are used interchangeably. gospels we can't just assume that they're always being used for their distinctive semantic connotation so we just we just need to be careful in that that we don't always go oh he used agape or he used phileo so he must mean this that, or the other sometimes they are used more casually we do this as well in english everyone everyone does this in their in their native tongue Uh, So that's the only point that I am making that in this case, and actually throughout the gospel of John, John is not careful about always distinguishing these two words. The biggest evidence of that is you will find verses that it says, God, the father loves the son with both kinds of love, agape and phileo. So clearly John is not always making that distinction, but again, I want to stress it. I am not saying that the distinction is never there. I'm just saying that it's not always there. And I have read that book by C.S. Lewis, phenomenal book highly suggested uh and as far as his suggestion on on church finding great i fully agree
0: i accidentally skipped over gilgamesh again so gilgamesh go ahead and chime in oh it's, it's fine. fine
4: no he was actually he put it in way at the beginning
0: so, oh okay well yeah, you did again the second yeah. time i see so i no I, this time he actually was this.
4: before me i looked Got and it. he was before me all right. here's the thing is that you know with the catholic church the problem is the guy running it is a jesuit priest if you know anything about jesuits not a good sign when he's saying all these ter- like gay marriage and all this stuff and oh we need to support you know this and this i'm like and somebody paul jess watson did a whole video on this where he pointed out that everything that the pope currently says goes along exactly with say with what you know the Return of Satan, you know, let's get rid of the whole border thing, all that stuff that he keeps pushing, this globalization. It's exactly the message that Satan and Lucifer talk about. And this is a big reason. And anybody who criticizes him, he's removed them from the church. And that's another problem I have with the church itself. It's something Blonde brought up about her church that she used to go to. They replaced it with a more progressive you know priest and everything that was like oh this is okay this is okay um but i have a suggestion for the next bible study you could either a possibility of peter or matthew for the next one their gospels those are two possibilities because you know not just you know matthew's an interesting one and so is peter um and everything i thought i'd bring that up but um yeah it's um I found it real hard because I live in Portland. And if you know shit about this city, it's like going to church is like Catholic church is like they're they've become very progressive with along the lines of what the Pope says. And I'm like, oh God, I can't go there. So I don't really go to church. But I still read the Bible and everything. And you know, it's all about if you believe in God and you know, Jesus is your savior, anybody can get into heaven as long as they repent their sin. Even a homosexual can get into heaven if they say, "Oh, I regret the lifestyle I've lived. but um yeah, so I just want to mention that about you know why I sort of don't go to church is because the guy running the church is a Jesuit and you if you know stuff about them, not a good sign of who's running the Catholic Church, the fact that he's removed anybody that criticizes him from the um, Vatican. So yeah.
5: your
1: thoughts, Robert. Yeah. Um, I would say if if you are Catholic and you're going to Catholic church, it is very much true that a church will look a little bit different if it's being led by, say, a Franciscan or a Jesuit. Uh, these are different orders within the Catholic church, uh-huh. and they do have, in theory, they have the same beliefs, and they just have different practices. And I know that that is an oversimplification of the matter, but... Um, but yeah, you will get a different experience, but I don't really want to weigh in on one order or the other. Yeah. I have attempted to stay non-denominational. Uh, but I would just say if you know if one church is not working for you, try uh, try going to another if, if you can. I, I do think it's important, but I'll just leave it
0: at yeah. that. Yeah, I thought I thought we was gonna get the formal declaration of who's satanic and who is not. Oh, oh
4: I, I believe it's a Jesuit pretty <laughs> the guy running the the church is the same as
0: I just I mean, do. I'm trying to put uh, oh, diplomatic Robert on the hook. That's all. Oh,
4: come on, Matt. You... All right. It's okay. They'll
0: all right. Thank fine. you. Man. Appreciate uh, it. Bye. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Let's see. Uh, Denby, you're free to chime in if you're ready. Uh, yeah. Um,
6: well just, uh, first, because it's, it's an interesting callback to the last one. Um, you know, uh, Robert gave, uh, you know, gave, uh, the covenant, uh, prayer there. And you know, that's, um, that's, that movement is directly where the the terms redneck and hillbilly come from. It comes from the the Scottish Covenanters. Uh, The Covenanters wore wore a red kerchief around their neck to symbolize that they were willing to, you know, lose their heads for their faith. And uh, the hillbilly thing, that was, uh, they were called Billy boys, as in they were supporters of the Protestant Prince William of Orange. And you know, as you know, a common form of William is Billy, and that's where it comes from because they fled to the hills of Scotland them. to escape persecution. They called were they were called hillbillies, and of course, um, a lot of them settled in in the, in in, the, in America. You know, like especially the Carolinas and so on. So that's where that comes from. It's just mm-hmm. kind of an interesting thing. The other thing is um, about the the churches. It's 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 very complicated. Um, I'm I'm in Canada and I was raised in the Anglican church and my diocese is quite a liberal one, but it's, it's actually liberal because they're not, they don't have drag, you know, drag queen stuff or, you know, and, and so I, what I would say about them as far as I can tell is they don't really condemn homosexuality, but they don't condone it either. They don't have sermons saying like, Oh, you know, you know, homosexuality is not a sin and blah, blah, blah. You know, so there's, it's, it's it is really complicated. It's hard to know from the outside what you're looking at. Um, you know, and, you know, as, as Robert said, it's like the, the Southern Baptist, like you, you, you would have no idea from the outside, like what, whether or not it was weird that they had women preachers or not. You know, because, you know, as Robert says, there's all, all kinds of, um, not extraneous, but different beliefs and different denominations that uh, tell you different things about where they are theologically. You know, so that's that's one thing that it's, um, you know, of course, you're welcome to ask us, any of us by email. If, you, if there's some denomination that you've looked at and, you know, you're interested in, you know, one of us happens to be that, Um you know, yeah. So that's just a you know a, a suggestion because it's it's not easy, it's not easy to know what you're looking at from the outside. Um, and uh, you know, as, as was indicated by Robert, it's not it's not always easy to tell if you're getting a straight answer about what they believe or don't believe and so on. You know. Uh, yeah. So-
0: well, I and I put a lot of value in a straight answer. It- it, even if I don't agree with the straight answer, because I'm able to evaluate if I yeah. fit in with that community and with that interpretation, it, it, you're right. Whether it's politics, Whether it's politics or religion, or religion or anything religion else, or... whenever someone gives you, you can tell they're holding back their their true beliefs. It's That's almost the biggest red flag of them all, you know.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, uh, thank you for the thoughts, Denby. Oh, you're welcome. Thank Appreciate you. It. Uh, Let's see. We do have, I think, three more requests for comments. We might run a little bit over time, but that's fine with me, Robert, if you have time. Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, Next up is uh, Brian, I think. Brian, go ahead and chime in if you're ready.
7: Thanks, Matt. Yeah, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. We've, we've kind of talked about this a little bit. I just wanted to expand on my point in the comments. Um, if you read Second Peter 1, 3 through 11, he's talking about participation in the divine nature. And he says, uh, because God has given, given us these promises and you can escape the corruption of the world caused by appetites and participate in the divine nature, which is what Jesus was talking about it with the descent of the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, make every effort to add to your faith, excellence to excellence, knowledge to knowledge, self, self mastery to self mastery, perseverance uh, to perseverance, uh, godliness to godliness, brotherly kindness or Philadelphia to Philadelphia, um, I mixed up the order, but uh, Philadelphia, then godliness, then uh, then agape. And so, in the context of spiritual development and maturity, he, Peter himself does make a distinction. And reading that, you can't help but think of his conversation with with Jesus on the beach, where he where he asked him, "Do you agapeo me?" "Yes, Lord, you know that I I Phileo you." And then he asked him the third time, do you phileo me? The, the, whole, the whole conversation was basically to humble Peter because he had overstated his level of devotion and learned by having denied him that he didn't have that level. The reason he was hurt was that, as, as I read it, and, and of course, you're, I, I, don't, I don't know that I'm changing your mind. I just wanted to offer that a perspective on why it does make sense that he, there's a distinction there. Jesus is expressing his own hurt as if to say, do you even have this level of love for me? And Peter was hurt because he asked him that. And then he said, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then he tells him, you're going to be martyred when you're older, as if to say, you don't, you're not at the, you're not that, don't have that level of maturity and devotion now, but you will, you are going to grow into it. And so it it in reading sec, reading Second Peter, it just so happens he predicts his death in that uh, that epistle too. But anyway, I just wanted to, to kind of offer that different perspective and uh, you were free to of course to, to tell me why I'm wrong or where to where I might be uh, what I might be overlooking there.
0: Ed do you have a response, Robert?
1: i mean i think it's been discussed already but my contention is john doesn't make the distinction in the gospel of john uh, in the my strongest evidence there would be that when he talks about the love of god to the son which is the highest form of love john uses both words agape and philel so it if if we're always supposed to make a distinction it, it creates issues in the Gospel of John. Now, I think he, Brian is fully correct that Peter is making the distinction. So again, my argument is not that the distinction is never appropriate. It's, it's just that it's not always appropriate. But at this point, I think people can, can make up their minds. I'm glad that Brian uh, kind of argued the other side so people can be aware of that. Thanks, Brian.
0: Uh, Donald, if you're ready, go yeah. ahead.
8: Uh, just a quick one on that 153. These are poor men. They count every fish, <laughs> so <laughs> have to grab each one. Um, and then just on the uh, church search, um, yeah, church's website can be really useful. I had a recommendation on a Presbyterian church just a few blocks away from me. And, I mean, that's the denomination I was raised under. And uh, so I checked out their website, and their latest service was all about um, you know, social justice and equity and yada, yada. So (laughs) that saved me a trip on that Sunday morning. Um, But man, uh, all the best to any and all of you who are going to be engaging in that search. I'm currently commuting out to a place that's like 20 miles away. Hmm. Um, But having, um, having a church where they have like weekday, weeknight Bible study, Something like that, man. That would be really useful too, and that's that's what I'm still looking for. So, God bless. Thanks, thanks so much.
0: Thanks,
1: Donald. Yeah. Uh, can, can I add? Just oh, something? yeah, go ahead. That I'm so glad that Donald said that. When you asked your original question, what other red flags can you be looking for? He he hit the main one, and I could not think of it at the time. All the social justice stuff. Um, if And this actually has a name, is what we would call the social gospel. Essentially, um, and I'm going to summarize this very crudely, but people who think the gospel really is good because of the social changes that it brings about, right? Um, They are going to have this heavy emphasis on social justice. They're probably on board with everything that, you know, Twitter's on board with or whatever. (laughs) And if, so essentially, yeah, if the church sounds just like all the big corporations mm, that I would say that's a red flag, but I, I'll leave it at that.
0: <laughs> all right.
5: Uh, Lag,
0: if you're ready, go ahead.
5: Yeah. Hi. Nice to um, talk to you guys. Um, so I had uh sort of two questions and then a, a, a brief, uh, a brief comment. Uh, the, the comment of course is regarding uh since C.S. Lewis's Four Loves book was mentioned, just to note that it that is that's on YouTube with the uh, audio version, mm. as well as there's a, a channel called uh, C.S. Lewis Doodle. If you guys have not heard of it, it's great. It's just um, essentially the C.S. Lewis's audiobooks put to a sort of Draw My Life style uh, video depicting all the stuff that he's talking about. So that's an excellent resource if you want to uh, look at C.S. Lewis's stuff. If Four Loves is on there with a separate video for each section, so that's great. Uh, the, the two questions, um, one of them may have already been answered in a previous uh, talk, and since I this is just the first time I've been able to join, I might've missed it. But especially since so much has been talked about some of the um, translation and language stuff tonight, I just was uh, wondering uh, what sort of uh, translations you might uh, recommend or recommend that we sort of avoid. That's the, that's the first question. Then the, um, the other one has to do with uh, when looking for new churches, I've generally found looking at the websites that they seem at least for most Protestant ones seem to just sort of be paraphrasing the apostle's creed. Um, And so with a few very charismatic exceptions that add in, we want you to speak in tongues. So was just wondering if that was also a sort of similar experience for uh, you when looking at uh, websites
1: okay. on the first question honestly any translation that is really a translation is is going to be pretty good like if you're using the esv the nrsv the nasb the net um, they're all fine the niv the niv is by far the most popular english translation Now, you're going to hear arguments against each translation, right? You're going to hear that the NIV has gone gender neutral because they have an agenda there, right? Um, You're going to hear that the, oh, my God, I'm going to get this wrong, so forgive me, but I think it's the the NRSV is the one used by most scholars. So I think it also is accused of having a more liberal bent. the ESV, I think, is used by the reform crowd, and, and if I'm getting this wrong, forgive me. All I'm, the, the only point I'm trying to make is no matter what translation you pick, somebody's going to say, "Oh, but you know that translation is bad because of this or that." Honestly, and I have looked at these claims at different points in my life. Uh, just be aware if there is a slight bias and compensate for it, and you're totally fine. Uh, I've never had an issue with the NIV. I know they're using more gender neutral language. I move on with my life. It is fine. Actually, the reason I use the NET is because it's not very popular. So people don't rage against it because they're not even aware of it. (laughs) And then the notes tell you about the different ways that it could have been translated. So I feel like it's fair in that regard if you get the version with the notes. Any modern translation will be totally fine unless you start using the paraphrasing or the paraphrases of the Bible, which are not translations. Like if you use the message or the, the passion translation, th- those are not translations. They, they, they paraphrase other translations. They, they would not be appropriate. So that would be my only question if I was choosing one. Is it a translation or is it a paraphrase? If it's a translation, go for it. You'll be fine. And then, oh, the second question on the Protestant churches. And yeah, um, well... Really, depending on the denomination you look at, every denomination adds to the Apostles' Creed, right? They they all have statement of beliefs that go further, and I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm I'm really not, but I'm saying that really you're not going to find a church that is that is true to the you know early church or whatever. Everyone makes that claim uh, because they want more legitimacy, but everybody's adding a little bit, and and you should just look into that. Uh, of course, it's most noticeable with the charismatics because you walk into that service and it looks completely different, right? There's singing and dancing and speaking in tongues and things happening. Uh, but, but really, I think uh, any denomination will have it, its distinctives. Um, and for the most part, we consider those to be secondary things and, and we're not going to hate one another for that or call each other non-believers for that. Um, but I, I hope that answers your question your question um you know i don't know that that's a tough one to answer thank you leg thank you appreciate it uh
0: okay daniel go ahead if you're ready
9: oh hey guys yeah um on the topic of uh, church hunting and all of that um i just wanted to um mention a concept that uh i don't think gets enough attention these days in most modern churches um and that is the uh, the notion of uh the catechism um this is something present in both catholic and protestant churches if they have a a strong association with um reform theology in particular but um many many modern churches that you know modern protestant churches in particular that have sort of uh, drifted away from uh, really uh, deep, I guess, uh, doctrinal study. Um, they don't do a whole lot of this, and, and I think that's unfortunate because I think studying catechism can really teach you the. Uh, it, it can it can show you exactly what the Christian faith actually is. Uh, by examining the uh the questions and answers and um uh, and all of that so I, I just wanted to throw that out there the um you know the, familiarize yourself with the word <laughs> catechism and um see what see what your prospective church thinks about the idea uh, and whether or not they have that kind of uh discipleship i guess so uh, if you had any comment on that robert <laughs>
1: No. I, I agree. I think catechism is very important. Of course, normally, the, you know, it's more the Catholics who use that word, but all Christians should believe in that. It's the idea of training someone in the faith. And if your church has no interest in training you in the faith, meaning talking about this stuff, learning the Bible, learning doctrine, learning theology, they have no interest in that. Yeah, I would say that's a bit of a red flag. Also,
0: a comment in the chat here, and this might have been a reference to a prior one, so I'm not sure where the idea originated, but I see it from Lady Golden Dragon, and this is a good clue I should remind myself of. Uh, Did the church stay open? That's a a good indicator of um, commitment to a lot of things. Let's put it that way. Commitment to their faith, in addition to a, a number of other important things. But I would agree that's an important indicator to me personally.
1: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if we're just using kind of rules of thumb, because I understand these are generalizations, but yeah, I would say any church that stayed open is probably pretty solid. I fully agree.
0: Better yet. Did they get arrested for staying open? not to get overly uh, political here, but you know, that, that demonstrates commitment to me too. And I like that. And uh Anyway, uh, Denby, I see you had one request for uh, a final word, so we'll probably have to be pretty quick here, but go ahead and get that in if well, you're ready. Right
6: yes, it's very, it's very quick. It's just, I, I totally forgot to mention this, is that in the U.S., um, the there's the Episcopal Church, which is what the original name for the Anglican Church, and if it's called an Anglican Church in America, it's probably going to be conservative. That's, that's something I totally forgot to mention, is that in England, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, it's the Anglican Church, but in America, in America, the the people who broke away from the, the drag queen you know, our churches are they call themselves Anglican churches now. So that's just a, like something for you Americans—an easy reference. Is that all right? That means they're not they're not having drag queen story hours. They're not talking about social justice. Yeah, you, know, you know just. I, I to- sorry i totally forgot about that earlier. I,
0: I appreciate that and that's another good indicator too do they have drag queen story um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will, i'll keep an eye out for that it's uh crazy times you know I, I guess it's good that some of the cues are so overt i don't yeah i, I'm I was asking, asking for subtle indicators and it's like well they're not subtle so you don't have to worry <laughs> uh thank you thank you for the thoughts i appreciate it uh all right. I think that's, uh, let me just double check, make sure that everybody who wanted to speak got to speak. Robert, did you have any thoughts before we finish up
1: here? I guess just some some closing thoughts. Um, this study has been incredible. It has been very meaningful to me. Uh, I put this in the blog and I'm not saying this to brag. It just shows kind of what we have been able to do here. We went through the entire Commentary of John by Craig Keener. I'm going to put it on screen. It's two volumes. With bibliography, it's like 1,600 pages. And I mean, we pretty much went through every bit of it. The blog alone is 130,000 words, which is the same length roughly as Tolkien's The Return of the King. And mind you, that's because I wasn't writing a blog for like the first six weeks, or it would be much lengthier. And the reason I'm pointing that out is to say, I think we did good work, regardless of what you think of me or if you agree with my opinions or not. I I earnestly think that this is a worthwhile um, endeavor. I hope that we learned a a bunch. If nothing else, you learn a bunch of history about the ancient world. Uh, So this has been very meaningful to me. I appreciate everyone who has participated. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for your input. Thank you, everyone, for your emails and and comments or whatever. Really, nobody has been a jerk. Uh, Everyone has been very kind, even if they don't agree, which is totally fine. Uh, So more trolling next season (laughs) where we mean No. no. Yeah. Uh, But thank you. Yeah, well,
0: and on behalf of everyone participating in the study, I hope I'm representing them when I say thank you for your commitment to it. just, just so everybody understands, and I'm sure they're aware, Robert does this purely because of his commitment to the Scripture. That that is the reason he's here, and and to share it with all of us. And and I'm very grateful to have that opportunity. That I've learned a lot about uh, a very important piece of Scripture. And I, I don't think, in fact, I know I couldn't have sat down and just read John's Gospel and understood it in the context that has been presented here. I would have struggled. I would have had to consult a whole host of internet sources that don't, I wouldn't even know how to read those properly. I wouldn't know where to go. So this has been hugely beneficial to me. And so I thank you for that, Robert. In addition to everybody participating in the study, we've had a nice little community here for the better part of a year. And I very much hope that this will continue. So uh, before we're finished up, I will remind everyone, if you would like to return in uh, June or when we do return sometime in the summer, Again, there's an email list on the Bible study page or a sign up for an email list on the Bible study page of the website. I will send you an email when we are ready to resume, should be sometime around June. And if you have thoughts about what we should study next or general thoughts about anything in the meantime, you're welcome to use the Bible study page to contact Robert. You can also contact me or if there's any piece of the study that you thought uh, or that you'd like to reference later, that you'd like to revisit, they're all, uh, all the blog posts, all the, uh, all the studies are available in an audio format on the Bible study page as well in the meantime. So that's all I have in closing. Anything else, Robert? No, that's it. See you guys in a few months. All right. Thanks, guys. We hope to see you back sometime around June.